This episode of the Chillinois podcast features a conversation that I had with Dr. Samuel Bannister. Sam is a medicinal chemist and pharmacologist. Sam is renowned for multiple reasons, including his research on cannabinoid drugs for epilepsy, neuropathic pain, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and more. He's very well published and respected with over 70 peer-reviewed publications. I learned from the Hamilton Morris podcast that Sam Bannister is one of the very few people that has an entire class of cannabinoids bearing his initials. Sam was kind beyond belief and I feel so grateful that I got the opportunity to spend some time with him. Check out Hamilton Morris's podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Hamilton Morris. As I alluded to earlier, he recently did a podcast with Sam Bannister, and it's brilliant. They get into some of the burdens associated with being a medicinal chemist inventing drugs that end up on the gray market and the ethics of doing that. And they also get into the emotional burden that comes with all of that and much more. As Hamilton describes, Sam is one of the great chemists and pharmacologists involved in psychoactive drug research today. Look, I'll be candid in saying that I have not held a favorable view of synthetic cannabinoids in the past. With that said, I've come to realize that my unfavorable experience that I had with synthetic cannabinoids likely was a result of inexperience and lack of education. Frankly, these synthetic cannabinoids are serious business, but that doesn't mean they should be illegal or demonized. In fact, I now believe quite the contrary. From what I can gather, we are learning so much about what cannabinoid receptor agonists can do. It wasn't until people started using synthetic cannabinoids and started experiencing extremely unpleasant symptoms that we really learned what cannabis hypermesis syndrome is and what causes it. It's important to note that synthetic cannabinoids grew in popularity because of the continued criminalization of natural cannabinoids. Synthetic cannabinoids don't show up on drug tests. In some cases, it can be cheaper and easier to acquire synthetic cannabinoids than actual cannabis. We've all seen it stocked at our local smoke shops. In today's episode, we dismantle the entourage effect, we discuss the future of medical cannabis, and we talk about Sam's new company, Silo Bio. They're hoping to make the world a better place with psychedelic-inspired medicine that is designed to treat mental illness. Enjoy this episode of The Chillinois Podcast. And don't forget to support us with a one-time monthly or yearly contribution of your choice at chillinois.net slash support. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Well, it feels, it feels weird wishing you a happy 420 because by the time people watch this, it won't be 420 anymore, but it's 420, goddammit, so happy 420. <laughs> and we actually live in the future here in, in Australia, so it's actually 421 here. Oh, <laughs> nice. We, like, I, I did celebrate 420 yesterday, and you know, a bicycle day a few days before that, so yeah, it's, it's yeah. been a pretty awesome month so far. We've been making the lame joke that you can, you can also celebrate on Friday because that's 422. <laughs> I, like so, it. I like it yeah anyways sam uh introduce yourself to the audience of the chillinois podcast yeah sure cool so yeah my name's sam bannister i'm a, a medicinal chemist by training and i've spent most of my career doing drug development so um thinking about how to develop better medicines for people and a large part of that is focused on drugs that target the endocannabinoid system as well as sort of cannabis-based medicines um, themselves 
Awesome. And where can folks find it? Don't you have like a website or something like silo.com or something? Yeah, yeah. So most recently, um, I'm the founder and CSO at a, a psychedelic biotech company here called Silo. So the, the website for that is just silo.bio. You can find out a little bit more about us there. Um, and across Google, if you, you search my name, you'll find a bunch of my scientific uh, publications and, and sort of popular works in the cannabis space. Yeah. So folks, yeah, if you're yeah. watching the, uh, yeah, if you're watching the video podcast, uh, and if you want to watch the video podcast, that's chillinoy.net slash YouTube. Uh, you can see I'm sharing Sam's uh, Twitter right now. And also here's a look at silo.bio, which we'll have, if, if you're listening, we'll have all the links in the podcast description so that you can check this stuff out at your own leisure. Um, Cool, man. Well, how did you, it, it, before we get into like the subject matter of today, and I actually have a particular tweet that I wanted to start the whole conversation off with that you shared. I think you know what I'm, what I'm talking about. Um, I wanted to just ask like, how did you get into this, man? I know that it's probably not a short story, but can you give me the highlight reel? Yeah, yeah, I can give you, so informally, I guess I've always been interested in, in psychoactive substances. And one of the reasons I became a chemist uh, many years ago there's two reasons really one was after you know my own experience with you know let's say a certain nameless psychoactive substance that had a, a pretty profound impact on my consciousness and i just remember thinking that it was you know truly profound and, and bizarre that literally milligrams of a substance could completely fundamentally change the way that a human sees the world um, and so that got me really interested in, in the chemistry of psychoactives and then thinking about the sort of impact that you can have with with your work and your life um, and in terms of the scale of that impact, I got really interested in, in drug development chemistry generally, but, but drug development specifically, because you know things like the discovery of penicillin have probably had a far more, um, a far bigger impact on the lives, uh, you know, of many many people than you know almost any other sort of effort to that point. So yeah, that's that's sort of the, the short version. Um, how I got into to cannabis specifically was was a little bit by accident. So um, during my PhD, I was working on some molecules. Um, belonging to a certain chemical class, these sort of cage-like amines. Um, and then a friend and colleague that I knew at one of the uh, forensic drug laboratories here got in touch because they'd actually intercepted, um, they'd intercepted a molecule that contained fragments of sort of molecules that I'd worked on during my PhD. This one was completely new, it was unknown. They'd never seen it before, which was very unusual. Uh, that molecule turned out to be uh, something called AB001 and it was what, what was being sold as these sort of spice or K2 compounds. Um, back in the day. So, you know, they're less popular now um, in the US and elsewhere, but they were very prevalent at the time. This was a completely new molecular structure. Um, as we were doing a bit of, of structure activity work around that molecule, which is sort of aiming to identify the parts of the molecule that give it activity, um, we came up with a number of new um, cannabinoid receptor agonists. Uh, we published some of those and, you know, I gave them sort of my own initials because that's the, the standard for um, drug naming early on. Um, so I had a series of SDB compounds with various numbers and about six months after we published that science, um, I got contacted by um, the heads of the Swedish and Finnish police forces because um, Sweden had intercepted about a kilogram of one of the compounds that I designed with my initials en route from Hong Kong. So presumably someone was having it manufactured in China, sent by Hong Kong to Europe for sale as one of these spice compounds. So. Um, that's sort of, you know, not really drug development, that's more on the sort of forensic chemistry side, but that's how I formally became a cannabinoid scientist. And that led me down a, a path of looking at the relationship between molecular structure and function on various aspects of, of the cannabinoid receptor system. Um, I got to work with some incredible people at, at Stanford when I was postdocing there. So um, I, I was working with a number of scientists who actually crystallized the first structure of the CB1 receptor 
um, complexed to um, a G protein signaling molecule with one of these synthetic cannabinoids um, bound to that structure. So, you know, published with, with Brian Kabilka, who's a Nobel laureate in this area, and Kavya Kumar, who is another Australian scientist working at Stanford. So just like having a lot of fun doing some really like cutting edge science in this space. Yeah. And that brought me back to, to Australia to work on the development of cannabis-based medicines and, and cannabinoid drugs um, for the treatment of Dravet syndrome and other sort of pediatric epilepsies. Very interesting. So, uh, got two questions for you here real quick. Um, what is the significance of that crystallization thing that you just talked about? Like, it sounded like it was pretty significant, but to a layman, I don't understand what you just said really. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, I speak to a number of different audiences with different levels of, sort of technical backgrounds. So please just, um, you know, ask for, for clarification. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Yep. So, so this is the CB1 is the target of THC. It's, it's the receptor that's responsible for many of the effects of THC. Um, and this, this structure shows that receptor bound to one of the proteins that it, it interacts with and sort of activates further downstream, as well as complex to a, a drug that activates it. So the drug in this case was one of these synthetic cannabinoids, something called um, MDMB Fubinaca, which is a bit, of a bit of a mouthful. So this ligand binds in a way that is um, slightly different to THC, and we have insights now sort of down to the molecular level um, as to why some of these synthetic cannabinoids, but not THC, have the effects on the CB1 receptor and its signaling um, and therefore effects on, on a whole organism, on a human um, that we didn't have before that study. So it's really sort of like an atomic level snapshot of the cannabinoid receptor as it's undergoing activation by something that, that binds to it. Yeah. This episode of the Chillinoy podcast is brought to you by Cream City Vapes. CreamCityVapes.com is my favorite shop for vaping accessories and supplies. I want to send a big thanks out to the folks at Cream City Vapes for sending us this Puffco Peak. Do you know what a Puffco Peak is? Well, you probably do because they're one of the best devices on the market. But if not, this device is a handheld concentrate vaporizer. That's right, it's a vaporizer that's designed specifically for ingesting cannabis concentrate. How do you use it? It's pretty fucking simple if you ask me. One of the number one reasons that people do not consume cannabis concentrate is that it's simply too complicated to consume. For maximum effect, allow me to loosely quote my high school drug dealer. When I'm trying to get high, I just wanna spark up and get high. I'm not trying to conduct a fucking science experiment. If you feel the same, the Puffco Peak is for you. Using the device is super simple. All you do is take a small amount of concentrate, and I'm talking a small amount, folks, just a little bit will do. And the device is ready to be used. Just like that, I'm taking dabs. No science experiment required. Shop with our friends at Cream City Vapes by going to creamcityvapes.com. They have the best vaping supplies and accessories, and they ship right out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which means that shipping is fast, cheap, and convenient. Once again, that's creamcityvapes.com. One of the things that somebody put it to me recently, and I don't know if this is what got you interested in it sounds like it is if this got you interested in your line of work but what what you just described it's like these naturally occurring compounds or precursors and i might be using the wrong words so please correct me i try to sound like i'm smart but i might be using the wrong words uh, but these natural occurring compounds or molecules um 
our precursors and can activate and act on our natural, like our natural receptors. Um, I find that fascinating about drugs. You know what I mean? Like if you think about yeah. it at that minimal of a level, the fact that it, that they are just compounds and yeah. basically at the press of a button, not really. I mean, in some cases, this is a vaporizer <laughs> pen. I can just press the button and, you know, activate my drug or whatever. Um, but, but I'm activating these compounds and taking them and, and it's interacting with my consciousness. Is that kind of, is, is that kind That's, of what got you into it? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Like the, you know, this fundamental question. And it turns out that the the answer is likely to be just, you know, a biological accident. But why do we have receptors in in the human brain? You know, the brain of this sort of bipedal primate that you know evolved in the plains of Africa. Why do we have receptors in our brain that naturally are activated by things like anandamide, these fatty acid molecules that serve a function uh, that can also be activated? by molecules produced by a plant, presumably for its own reasons, completely independent of us to have these profound psychoactive effects and therefore sort of promote its, its cultivation across the world. And yet can also be activated by entirely different classes of molecules that look nothing like the, the natural molecules from within our body, look nothing like the natural molecules that are found in cannabis, um, look completely chemically and structurally distinct and can have similar effects. Like that, that does sort of blow my mind. And, and that is really the, the very fundamental sort of basis of medicinal chemistry, the relationship between molecular structure function at a biological target and then an effect on, on a disease or, or an organism. It's, yeah. it's pretty and, wild stuff. And I truly believe that this is where the, the war on drugs or anybody that are pro like prohibitionists by nature, if you will, um, that's where like their logic falls apart because when you recognize that again, these are precursors that mimic naturally occurring compounds in our body, I might be butchering that. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like without this, we're basically all walking around tripping anyways. You know what I mean? Cause I mean, we dream yeah. every night, dimethyltryptamine. Yeah. We've got our endocannabinoid system. Exactly. I mean, the, the war on drugs. Um, and I point out, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the way I've always viewed it is, you know, it's the war on some drugs and really it's, it's the war on some people who use some drugs. If, if we're being quite honest, it's, it's extremely political. Um, but yeah, it's, it's ultimately futile unless you're going to take a blanket approach to all drugs just for, you know, in the interest of being equity, which equitable, which we, we certainly don't do, you know, alcohol's legal in many places, tobacco's legal in many places, but yeah, trying to ban compounds that modify consciousness is, is absurd. Um, and yeah. it's actually one of the, it's one of the defining traits of, of human culture. There is no culture in, in the world that I'm aware of that doesn't seek to modulate its own consciousness in some way. So it's truly a futile sort of political effort to, to control some people who use some drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's weird. It's like, they, they say it's out of uh, self-interest and, you know, protect, we got to protect people and it's like, okay, well, if that's the case, maybe we should have, maybe our researchers like you and folks in, you know, uh, everywhere uh, that, that are esteemed researchers, maybe then they should have access to be able to do research like they do with every other drug or, you know, not every <laughs> other drug, but like you say, it's, it's this certain list. It, it really yep. is. I mean, uh, somebody pointed out to me the other day that in the United States, the controlled substances act, which references all these drugs that are commonly, you know, uh, slandered or, or what, what have you tobacco and alcohol are not listed in there, Yep. which is yeah. the, the, the U S tried the prohibition of alcohol, as I remember in the early part of the 20th century, that, that didn't go so well. We saw a lot of the same, a lot of the same harms propagated sort of more broadly through different parts of society than the other, 
the other drugs that have been prohibited at that point. Um, I, I don't know how much your, your listeners know or are interested, but I mean, the entire history of a prohibition in, in the United Kingdom and in the United States, it's all sort of founded on, on racism and, and political convenience, really. Um, yeah, it's definitely not based in science, which is, is quite frustrating. Absolutely. Yeah, we try to highlight that all the time. Um, and I think this is a perfect segue um, into one of the reasons I brought you on today. Um, because not only are the arguments against cannabis not based in science, but frankly, some of the arguments for cannabis aren't based in science. And that's especially troublesome. It's very troublesome. So I'm sharing a tweet right now that I loved because I shared it and it, I hate to use this uh, phrase, but it triggered people because some people just really love, yeah, some people just really love the entourage effect. I don't know. (laughs) And it's like, to me, and I want to turn the floor over to you because I, people have been begging for your perspective on this. They're like, what, what does he mean? I want to hear more, you know, and they've, they've tried to look in your research and stuff, but like, like I say, I'm a layman. Some of my audience are too. So that's, I wanted to bring you on to, to give you the floor to explain it. Um, but, but to me, I've always been suspect. Like when I first went and got my medical cannabis card, the physician gave me a handout from a, a licensed cultivator in the state of Illinois that uh, listed all the terpenes and what they do. As if it was just like, like, yeah, you want the, you want to feel, you want to feel awake, limonene, you want to feel sleepy, this, you want to, uh, have tacos in the afternoon and make sure that your aunt doesn't annoy you this terpene. I, I don't know. I'm just, there's so, like specific formulations as if it's all set in science and it's all based on this idea of the entourage effect. Um, floor is yours. I, I want to hear like what, what this means. And, and obviously you have research to back it up. So, um, <laughs> yeah, sure. I think, I think I should start by sort of clarifying what I mean here. And, and obviously, I mean, this, this could be a, a pretty oh, long yeah. back and forth and I'd love to hear your insights as well. And so, for folks that are listening, uh, when you start read the tweet <laughs> so that they know yeah. what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So this tweet that I put out and actually, you know, as I tweeted this, I forgot that I tweeted something similar, maybe like a year ago when I, I, just read some bad science in this space um, and I'd formulated it in a different way and it got the same amount of, of backlash and I f- compl- entirely forgot that this always happens every time you put this tweet out because some people are really just really married to this idea. Yeah. Um, but the tweet was, you know, the quote, entourage effect is just astrology for pharmacologists. And some people agreed and some people very, very strongly disagreed with that statement. Um, yeah. I liked, I liked this one. This, that's this amazing. So that's actually my buddy, Mike Cunningham. He's a chemist too. He's, he's a brilliant guy. He works for a psychedelics company called Gilgamesh at the moment. Um, and I, I laughed very hard when he posted that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sort of my, my feeling on the matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for your listeners, it's just a, um, a photo of Walter White from Breaking Bad with a, a dropper and he's the, the caption for the meme is, potheads carefully selecting the right strain and profile of cannabinoids for the maximum effect of sitting on the couch. <laughs> did I love it. Laugh. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. So the, the entourage effect is this idea. It's not a particularly new idea. It's, it's promoted most prominently by um, a, a scientist named Ethan Russo. He's, he's very prominent in the cannabis space. I think people, your listeners would certainly have heard of him. Um, and he, he had this idea that the terpenes are key for the sort of biological activity of cannabis. And the reason that I, I disagree with that statement, despite having spent time with many collaborators looking for evidence of this, 
is that just there's no evidence for it. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. We, in every and case that we've looked at. To be clear, he said the terpenes or what yeah. did he say? This is specifically around the terpenes. Um, that's where I have most of my criticism. There's some yeah. argument for the entourage effect applying to combinations of phytocannabinoids. Um, and, and my argument is basically that on a, in terms of sort of synergy of terpenes with cannabinoids or minor cannabinoids with the major phytocannabinoids at the concentrations that people are generally using them, if they smoke herbal cannabis or, or take a cannabis oil extract, do not really have a function that we can detect scientifically. So, so we've looked at this, you know, um, I was working with a group called the Lambert Initiative at the University of Sydney, um, founded by a philanthropic donation to understand precisely how various cannabinoids interact um, to have benefits in patients. And there is some evidence, for example, that sufficiently high concentrations of CBD um, and, and other phytocannabinoids can modulate the metabolism of each other. And that may lead to some sort of differences in um, effects in, in diseases like epilepsy. But there's very little evidence that various phytocannabinoids in smoked herbal cannabis contribute to the subjective effects um, of this drug. And, and what's very frustrating, it's you see it again and again, now that I'm in the psychedelic space, you see it with mushroom strains, people taking a profoundly mind altering substance and claiming with prior knowledge of the fact that of the strain they're taking, that there are strain dependent differences without any kind of blinding or control. And I think what's, it's just really, uh, the other place you see it is with 5-MeO-DMT, people claiming that 5-MeO-DMT from Bufa ovarius and other toads is different to synthetic 5-MeO-DMT. And, and I don't think there's really any good evidence for that either. But in the cannabis space, um, people, people are really attached to this idea and they, you know, <laughs> they take it very personally, any sort of attack on this idea that maybe in most cannabis strains, if you're looking to get high, THC is the most important thing. And apart from sort of smell, and flavor, a lot of the terpenes don't really do much else. That's sort of yeah. my position. That's, that's after years of looking for an effect and finding very, very little. And it's, it's ultimately, um, you know, it's an unprovable sort of hypothesis, right? You can never prove that they absolutely have no effect, but we continue to produce evidence showing that there's very little synergy between these components apart from flavor and, and um, scent. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting. Um, I have to say, like I, I was, we're on the same exact page. I wasn't sure when coming into it, if, if you were taking those cannabinoids into effect, but yeah, I just, like you say, the terpenes, not that they're not there. I mean, um, lab reports show that they are indeed present. What you're saying is the synergy, um, the effect that synergistically they have behind this entourage hypothesis but i thought somebody retweeted or, or replied to your tweet and said we should start calling it the entourage hypothesis instead of the entourage <laughs> yeah, effect and i like correct. that because it's unproven i mean it frankly is yep. and one of the key things let's take ourselves back to fifth grade uh science maybe you and aussie got taught it earlier or whatever but uh you said control group and what was the other thing that the the uh, blinding blinding so yeah kind of i mean there's no peer-reviewed studying going on with this right now uh, i so there's, there's a number of issues there to unpack, but the problem is with psychoactive drugs, it's very hard to truly um, placebo control them. People can usually tell they're receiving a psychoactive drug regardless of what the drug is. So it's very, very hard to control for that. And blinding, blinding can be done, but only in as much as, you know, things that don't have taste or smell. So you can't truly blind two different strains of cannabis, two different cultivars, because people will be able to smell the differences in those. Uh, my query is whether knowledge of the different scents of cannabis and therefore an associated effect that you get from them 
are truly due to the terpenes or due to your own expectations and maybe the marketing around different terpenes, as you just said, claims that I'm sure the FDA doesn't support around limonene being maybe more chill than <laughs> energizing, you know, um, that's, that's sort of my position on it. And there's, there's a number of other good uh, pieces of supporting data for this. And one is in beer, obviously. So hops actually produces a huge number of the same terpenes that cannabis does. You never hear anyone talking about the entourage effect of beer or how they had like a really chill IPA versus, you know, a super energizing double IPA. And in, in that case, it's actually more relevant because the quantities of terpene that you're consuming in a volume of, of beer are much larger than the amount of terpene you're getting from herbal cannabis smokes. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head, but I always feel like whenever I view a, a lab report for, for cannabis, at least here in the state of Illinois, that includes a terpene readout they're never higher than 5%. In other words, bringing, you, bringing myself back to my statistics class, I don't think that's statistically significant. <laughs> it, it is, it would be. There's one case where it would be. So drugs, we have drugs um, in the human pharmacopoeia that are active at uh, several hundred micrograms. So this is submilligram quantities, millions of a gram, hundreds of millions of a gram. Things like LSD are active at that dose. Some of the most potent substances known to man. And then at the other end, we have things like uh, paracetamol here or uh, acetaminophen, which is you know half a gram dose. We have some drugs that we use on the almost at food levels, gram quantities. So that's a huge range of potencies for different substances. To be biologically relevant, physiologically relevant, as we say, if you were to sit down and smoke you know half a gram of cannabis, which I, I would contend is a lot in, in sort of one session for most people, given the percentages that are, you, you can do the calculations on the amount of terpene maximum that's available in that cannabis. And we don't have any evidence to date that terpenes have an effect on biological systems at those concentrations that you're likely to achieve from smoking that herbal cannabis. So they definitely contribute to the smell and taste of cannabis as terpenes do in many products, but claiming, you know, making medical claims or even sort of physiological claims about, you know, how, how relaxing or energizing certain terpenes might be. It's, you know, it's, it's expectation bias is what it is. It's people being marketed an idea and then believing that idea because they've been sold that idea. It's, and I am I wrong it, in drawing a tangent, but it sounds like essential oils. And some people I know, depending on where you stand, some people are like, what are you talking about? It sounds like essential oils. It's like, well, yeah, that's the problem. It, it is essential oils. That's a, you know, cannabis produces this amazing bouquet of, of different terpenes that gives it its characteristic scent and different different cultivars of cannabis produce different amounts of these terpenes. And that's why you have these sort of, um, you know, these aromatic sort of nomenclature around, you know, diesel strains, sour strains versus other more fruity strains. It's, it's to do with the ratios of different terpenes, as is true with beer, as is true with, you know, lavender and, and other plants that produce essential oils. So it, it, it's aromatherapy is, is more accurate. That's what it is. The THC is definitely psychoactive and intoxicating. It has medical benefits for people in different indications, but the medical effects of terpenes are probably mostly in your head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I want, so we've kind of got that on the table now. Um, we're, we're saying basically that the claims uh, that frankly, a lot of uh, cannabis companies and, and people in the cannabis culture are making that uh, the entourage effect Basically, like if you're looking for cannabis, you should look at the readout of cannabinoids, but you should also look at the re readout of terpenes because these terpenes have these magical roles. That's basically <laughs> what they say. And yeah. we're pointing out that there's nothing, there's no data that um, 
that leads us to believe that's true. Um, I wanted to talk about the cannabinoids, but I guess before we moved on from this subject, um, just for anybody who's still hanging on and might still be doubting, can you just give us like a little bit more details about like what maybe some of your experiments included and how you came to some of these conclusions? Yeah, sure. We talked about it vaguely or briefly, yeah. I mean to say, but. Yep, yep, um, yeah. It's a great question. So we we have done this at the receptor level, and and by that I mean looking at both single cannabinoids, cannabinoids in combination, cannabinoids and terpenes, and terpenes in combination. And we've looked at these on a number of different receptors that are relevant, that we know are relevant to the activities of of cannabis generally and of related molecules. So those include things like um, the CB1 and CB2 receptors, the um, the canonical cannabinoid receptors in the body. Um, but we've also looked at um, various ion channels that are relevant to to the effects of terpenes, um, so trip channels and, and things like this. At at no point do we see any evidence of a sort of synergistic effect or interplay between any of these components. And of course, what's really frustrating is that you know, and this uh, we're not the only group that's looked at this. Plenty of other people have looked at it and sort of also failed to find any meaningful effects. And as soon as you point that out to people, they say. Well, that's just components of cannabis. That's not the whole plant or a whole plant extract. So like the goalposts keep moving, no matter how little evidence you fail to show, people will just shift the requirements, which is is very frustrating. And I and actually we we have done studies with whole cannabis extracts too, um, where you you don't really see anything especially meaningful. Um the, the one exception to this is that you do see in the same way that you would for any other plant containing polyphenols at, at high concentrations, um, you do see an effect on at high doses of some cannabinoids on the metabolic machinery that breaks down both those cannabinoids and other drugs. So there's some really interesting work from the Lambert Initiative showing that, um, you know, high enough doses of some cannabinoids actually change the metabolism of a, a known um, epilept- anti-epileptic drug that is used in combination with the CBD. So you can get this interplay between metabolism of two different drugs as a result of taking very high concentrations of cannabinoids, but that's not an effect between, you know, two cannabinoids themselves necessarily. Uh, as far as you can tell, looking at, and people have, you know, have to remember, this is one of the most studied plants on earth. The only compound that has in, in cannabis that is abundantly found in the plant, you know, meaning it's not a, a trace component that has well-known psychoactive effects in the milligram range or, or even bioactive effects in the milligram range is, is probably THC. CBD does a few different things, but at much higher concentrations. And we, you know, only recently have we sort of really focused on high CBD strains of cannabis. And most of the other cannabis components are there in much, much smaller quantities. Um, and when people go looking at the bioactivity of those compounds, you don't find anything that's as potent as THC generally. Uh, and this is an idea that, that comes up again as well. Occasionally, someone will find, um, someone found the C4 homologue of THC as a component in cannabis recently. It's there in truly minuscule quantities. It is slightly uh, almost equivalent potency to THC, but people started making the claim um, broadly outside the scientific space, people making the claim that this trace component that is of no physiological relevance in the amounts that it's found in cannabis might contribute to the effects because it also happens to have a THC-like profile. But it just doesn't make sense. You know, you, you already have so much THC there in a relative sense, that's probably likely contributing most of the psychoactive effects beyond any, any trace components that we can show don't really do much at the levels in which they are found. Interesting. Well, uh, you bring me to my next point or my next point of discussion rather, um, which is I wanted to, 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 to talk to you because um, another reason I wanted to talk to you rather was the conversation about THC and potency. So 
um, and, and whether or not THC equals potency. Because uh, the reason I want to talk about this is because uh, prohibitionists, uh, politicians, um, even as recently as what was it here, uh, 2019, um, we've had people say things like this. I'll read the quote, but I wanted to share. Uh, this ain't your mother's marijuana. Not enough people know that today's marijuana is far more potent than in days past. Um, we've ta- we've actually talked with the article of this, uh, uh, or sorry, the author of this article who actually went through in history how many times people have said this. Uh, you know, U.S. drug czar <laughs> Lee Brown said 40 times, then 10 to 15 years ago. Um, you go back and there's, uh, Paul Harvey, a national columnist is saying that it's 15 times, 15 to 20 times stronger. People have heard me go on this, this rant before. Uh, Um, but I wanted to ask you today because again, prohibitionists and people that are opposed to, uh, the progression of cannabis, uh, legalization or decriminalization or, at least the loosening on research around it. Their claim is that cannabis is so much more potent now and it's just not the same substance. And he's trying to make the point, and I think he does it half-heartedly. Um, and I, I spoke with him about this. He mentions the entourage effect, but one of the he doesn't go into that really. I liked these other points that he brought up, which is that first of all, seeds and sensimalia were a big thing back in the day. And if you grind all of that up, and measure the overall THC in the blend, this is going to produce a much lower result for the batch. I mean, the way that we're cultivating cannabis nowadays is simply a different product. It doesn't look like this anymore. Um, Another huge one, and I think you're going to really latch onto this one, is different testing methods can also produce different results. Back in the day, they used gas chromatography, which as you may know, or at least according to this, I don't know if this is true, so feel free to weigh in. can destroy THC and other cannabinoids because of the heat involved. And so I could go through these different things. One, one thing though, that I think is important is that it's funny that prohibitionists and people that oppose cannabis parrot this line, because frankly, people purchase uh, lab results that favor a higher THC percentage. So you're almost like parroting a falsehood. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? If you really yeah. think about it that way, like, because we've found time and time again, like, people will literally pay for like, please list us as a 35% THC, more people will buy our product, you know? So if you're parroting that cannabis is more potent than ever, um, you're almost parroting a lie, but I want to take it back. Let's get back in the pocket here. Um, Can THC or is THC an indicator? Can it be used as an indicator of potency? And I guess the reason I I asked that it's back to the, question of how all the cannabinoids play together. So. Yeah. THC is probably, as far as we can tell to date, of all of the commercial cultivars of cannabis that exists and the effects of those cultivars, if you're talking about intoxicating psychoactive effects, even some of the medical effects, THC is probably the main uh, the main cannabinoid of relevance there. So I'd, I'd argue that it is somewhat synonymous with potency, but it's also it's an irrelevant question because you can go buy a case of beer and a bottle of whiskey and you know that you don't drink the same volume of whiskey as you do of beer. People know this and cannabis consumers will know this too. No one goes to buy like, you know, some resin and thinks that they can smoke an equivalent amount as they would for herbal cannabis. You know, people figure that stuff out pretty quickly. So I would argue that it's synonymous with potency in the same way that alcohol strength is, but it's kind of irrelevant. It's a moot point in, in that case. 
Yeah, but and hear me out. I think I might be. This is where I might get you. Um, the the alcohol, the the example of alcohol, I like actually because you kind of know with alcohol, like I'm going to go get a Heineken, you know what it's going to taste like. First of all, it's not something you can always say with the cannabis, you know what it's going to taste like. I mean, you're very rarely going to get a dud from a big producer like that. Um, you know what it's going to feel like. Now there's exceptions to that. If you drink it on an empty stomach, if you're on other medications, exactly, exactly. There's my point exceptions. To the exceptions. effect. Yep. Yeah. So, um, my question though, really is like alcohol is homogenous, the concentration at least and cannabinoids. I mean, it's a plan. It can't get, it can't be that way. Just like, like it's yeah. physically impossible. Even, yeah. Even, even biologically, we know that like the cannabinoids are produced by these tiny glands on the, you know, the, the seed capsule that excrete them for reasons we don't understand. So it's even within the plant structure itself, it's, it's isolated to specific um, compartments of, of that plant. Yeah. Um, but in a, in a herbal cannabis product and certainly in an extract in the way that it's used, which is usually sort of milled in some way or chopped up, you know, it's, it's going to be more or less homogenous, I would think. And this is the whole point of, of testing in, in states that now have legal cannabis is that you can attempt to apply some of this sort of rigor to understanding what the, uh, you know, what the nature of that cannabis product is, how much THC or CBD or other things does it contain. So I think it's, I think it's entirely reasonable, you know, to, to your point about the testing, Cannabis testing is hard. I've spoken with a few companies in the US who are doing this, you know, some of the companies that were trying to be the first sort of uh, licensed testing laboratories in Oregon, just after Oregon passed its, its um, recreational cannabis laws. And, and it's, it's tough stuff, like it's hard science. Um, you know, we have all these standardized methods now for showing different amounts of things, but cannabinoids themselves are inherently, um, they're inherently unstable. The plant doesn't produce THC, it produces a precursory THC acid. That's what's actually expressed by the plant that decomposes in the presence of heat and light into THC. So, you know, it is, it is hard to actually test the amount of cannabinoids in different plant products. There's some sort of variability there, but any good standardized lab should have methods to be able to do that. Um, I, I think if you're talking about potency of a cannabis strain, I think THC is sort of the number one thing in there that's gonna be the main determinant of how potent you perceive that product to be. I think that's almost certainly true. Um, and it should be more or less standardized in most good commercial products these days. But I'd argue that consumers are, are smart people and they know that you, you know, they know what to expect from a cannabis product based on how much THC is in there, I think. Yeah. You know, if, if someone goes out and, you know, probably can't even buy 5% THC products these days, but, you know, if you buy a 5% herbal THC product versus a 35% THC product, you know to smoke less of the 35% THC product. Like people, people know this intuitively, I would argue. Yeah. So, but see, this is where I actually have a slight, slight disagreement with you is uh, anecdotally, I'm going to say that because it's me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I've tried what people have proposed to be higher percentages, it doesn't, or higher potency. And again, this is, can totally be chalked up to an, an anecdote, but it just doesn't always seem to bear true. A few examples I can give you is like, um, you know, I can, and it depends on the concentrate. So again, a little bit more into the anecdote space, but, uh, I can dab a concentrate, you know, six dabs to the face, you know, what a dab is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure I'm not yeah. using, yeah, yeah, um, no. we, make we sure we're using those. the same terms. Yeah, we don't have those products here in Australia, but I, I lived in California for quite a few years, so I, I'm familiar with them, yeah. Yeah, so I can take a bunch of dabs straight to the face and, and function uh, 
I would describe it akin to like ADHD medication, uh, but then I smoke a 16% flower, 16% THC flower, it turns my world upside down. And I wonder like, and I've actually had the same thing with flower. Like we got, um, which whether or not these people bought the tests is, is a question. Um, but Brownie scout, if you Google it, um, it was, uh, purported to be the highest testing cannabis in the United States. We got a batch. It was decent, but it wasn't great. It wasn't great. You know what I mean? And yeah, so yeah. I actually hear, I said, I kind of disagree with you because you said something earlier that that's making me hesitate. And I want to see if we can regroup and, and see if, if maybe you, yeah, we'll see if we can come together on this one. Yeah. Um, you pointed out, and this is what's making me hesitate. You pointed out that, you know, you get a beer, but you get an alcohol. Frankly, those make me feel different too. You yep. know what I mean? Like, uh, yep. uh, I don't know exactly how to describe it as in depth as, as I just did with cannabis, but I think it'd be much akin to it. Yeah. I, I think that's entirely reasonable. And this is, so, so there are two issues here. One is the testing that you mentioned. And, you know, if you got three different testing laboratories to test those same substances, would they come back with the same result? I mean, that's, that's pretty important in terms of the, the well, the big issue is the cannabis you actually get is not tested. Like it's, <laughs> It's you have a, you right? have a, yeah, you have a batch that's, or you have a samples that are pulled that are representative of the batch yeah, exactly. as the labs have told us. So, so, yeah. so that's, that is, you know, not to draw like broad analogies where they don't fit, but that, that is different to alcohol, right. In in a very real way, you can draw from the exact barrel of whiskey that you're, you're making and that will be representative, but because it's literally drawn from the same volume of mixing liquid. So that, that is a key point of differentiation from, from cannabis. So I'd, I'd argue you're absolutely right there. It could be that you know, the sample is tested is not representative. That can absolutely happen with herbal products. The testing laboratory doesn't have good testing methods. That can absolutely happen with any, any testing laboratory. And then the third one that you, you're talking about the differences, you know, you can, you can tell the difference between a beer and a, and a whiskey and beyond, you know, taste and the form of those drugs. They're also absorbed differently in the body, right? You, you tend to drink a beer much more slowly. I'd, I'd argue that, you know, um, shotgunning a beer is probably very different to sitting down and, and sipping a beer really slowly over an hour, you know, and, and whiskey tends to be sort of consumed in a slightly different way as well. So there's sort of the mode of consumption, um, but also the, the speed at which that's been absorbed into the stomach and then into the bloodstream. So, and ultimately reaching the brain. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Like these are drugs that are used in slightly different ways. I'm, I'm not familiar with dabbing myself personally, um, but I would expect that it would be different. It's, it's a different form of a product. It probably has a different, um, different components, certainly a different amount of THC. And even if it was only THC in that and herbal cannabis, you would expect those products to be different because one's closer to sort of like a, a vaporization, which is a, a technically different method of administration. And, and one is smoking, which is different again, you know, it'd be different if you just ate some of that um, dab mixture that had been heated. So entirely different methods. Of Absolutely. It'd be much different. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Edible yeah. cannabis is, I, I've, I have my experience with um, edible cannabis products and, you know, highly variable absorption which leads to like very very different effects even with the same you know same half of the same sorry different halves of the same cookie on two different occasions depending on what else you've eaten you can have two wildly different experiences with those sorts of products so this this inconsistency in the absorption of cannabis in its various forms is also kind of a bit of a, a tricky issue in the space and edibles are a great example of where terpenes are not at all a part of the conversation yeah, and it's funny you know, that people are like forget about terpenes <laughs> in that equation. They're like, wait yeah, a minute, they, they just magically disappear when you have edibles, and then it's then it's got to be down to other aspects of entourage or you know so, some other uh -huh. thing, some other shifted goalpost. But yeah, yeah, you're right. No, 
you know, no one really, people generally don't want cannabis flavor in their edible products. Generally, as has been my experience speaking to people, people don't want something that tastes like, you know, a whole bunch of clipped grass. Like that's not, <laughs> that people don't want that really herby, you know, herbaceous sort of flavor to their edible products. They want something that tastes like whatever the product itself is that has yeah. cannabis-like effects. All of my friends would agree with you. The only reason I disagree with you is because when I eat a edible that tastes like that, I'm like, I'm about to get fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, you know, look, maybe, maybe there is some entourage going on there. I don't know, but more likely there's some sort of expectation. Oh, of bias oh yeah. No, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to say that, that, that <laughs> there was the entourage. I was just trying to say if I can taste the weed, I yeah. know it's super potent. That, you know that, what I mean? That's what I mean. There's expectation bias there as well. So maybe, you know, maybe the, the first, few edibles that you had or the strongest edibles you've had at some point in history, you know, had a, a particularly herby flavor <laughs> True. <laughs> and you've now True. got that association. That's, that's actually a really interesting thought I've never thought of before. Yeah. So it's, it is interesting how we can just associate things uh, and just chalk things up to that. I mean, that's kind of what we're yeah. thriving on. That, that's I think, what this thrive. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. I don't have any issue with any of this. You know, I'm happy for marketers to go crazy to talking about their products and how they're different. And, and I hope everyone's having a good time using the products the two issues that I, I, I really have is if you're charging a premium on those products purely around marketing claims that have no basis in reality, that feels a bit fraudulent to me. And, and especially if you're making medical claims, that's the one I really have a big issue with. Like if someone's looking to treat a disease with a cannabis product and you're making claims about terpenes that you can't prove do anything, that is, you know, the, the FDA polices that sort of thing for other pharmaceuticals because it's, it's sort of a legal activity. Um, but the cannabis space sort of operates, you know, a little bit adjacent to that. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not against broad marketing claims. I'm not against people wanting to enjoy the entourage effect, whether it or not it exists. I just don't really like the idea of people profiting off it when it's it's not backed by science. Very well. Um, so uh, one last thought on this, and then I think we can uh, start to maybe talk about other drugs as we start to close, yeah. uh, which is always fun. Other drugs are fun, <laughs> right? Um, so one last thought on the entourage effect that I think is important. For, I've made this point too, but I wanted to hear hear your uh perspective. It's like, we've talked to labs and they show us the readout of cannabinoids and they're like, yeah, you know, these are 10, but there's 200, hundreds of cannabinoids and we don't even know. Yeah. Um, So I I always bring that up. It's like, that's part of the equation too. And we're not even, we don't even know. That that's true. And I, I, and I've taken a position where I was extremely optimistic about this space. You know, I, I literally dedicated a few years of my life to studying the compounds in this plant very, very extensively. Um, my, my counterpoint there is, is just from a basic skeptical science standpoint, there are, there are a ton of compounds in cannabis. Cannabis is not unique in that sense. You know, there's actually a, a radula species from New Zealand, um, that produces, Sorry, it might be a false. I can't remember if it's from New Zealand. There's a radula species that produces a compound that is cannabis-like that has a structural similarity to THC. Um, I don't know if I can drop you the link here for this compound. You can pull it up. Yeah. So this is an interesting compound that's found in this radula species. Structurally, it looks a whole lot like THC. So it differs by the, the tails. Cannabis has, uh, THC, sorry, has this C5 carbon chain tail on the right hand of the molecule there. This compound, you know, has a few minor differences going on at the left-hand side of the molecule, but the big difference is this sort of two-carbon chain with this six-membered ring off to the right. So a medicinal chemist can tell you that that chain is probably likely to be uh, psychoactive, make that compound psychoactive as well. And, and some chemists have now done this. They've made this. They've shown that it's psychoactive. Um, there's no evidence really that this radula species that you, you can see there it comes from Japan, New Zealand, and Costa Rica. 
um, some of these species. There's no evidence that people use these to get high, but this compound itself, you can certainly predict to be psychoactive. The reason we don't have any evidence showing that people do get high off this plant is because it's probably not there in, in quantities abundant enough for people to use it. And, and this is sort of the same case for almost every example of a phytocannabinoid you can find in cannabis. Um, CBD, you know, in the way that it's prescribed as Epidiolex for, for Dravet syndrome is as an adjunct to epilepsy medications. And it's typically for, for children, pediatric patients, it's grams per day. It's grams of CBD. Like you could not get that from the cannabis plant alone. You have to make these quite concentrated extracts of high CBD strains. It's, it's not a very potent drug. THC is a pretty potent drug. And everything else that we found in cannabis so far falls somewhere sort of in that, in that spectrum or a little bit past THC. So there's nothing that's as potent as THC as far as we can tell and certainly nothing that's abundant and at any target that we can measure. And there's a lot of things that are less potent than CBD or at a number of different targets. So yes, it's possible that within that set of 200 or you know maybe 300, if we look at 100 other compounds we haven't found, Maybe there's something that interacts with a receptor that we don't know of yet at a potency that's you know superior to THC for the CB1 receptor, and some of the bioactivity is derived from from this mystery compound at this mystery receptor. But statistically, given how much people have looked and continue to find compounds and continue to look, and the fact that we haven't found any evidence of that, I just think it's statistically very unlikely. You know, we've thrown a lot of money and a lot of science behind trying to understand a lot of the compounds in this plant, and and people continue to make the claim that. You know, it's, it's almost like faith at this point. It's like, oh, there are more than 140s often thrown around phytocannabinoids, more than 200 compounds in the plant. I'm yet to see any like really compelling evidence that any of these minor phytocannabinoids have any sort of magical effects that we're not already aware of. And that doesn't mean we should keep looking. We, we absolutely should keep looking and continue to study the plant and all of its components. But we should reserve our, our sort of faith in how much these are likely to contribute to the sort of power of cannabis as a plant and as a medicine, you know, as a, a substance for human use. I just think there's not a lot of evidence there for beyond the compounds that we know about at this point. Awesome. Thanks for breaking that down. Um, you brought up Epidiolex. Am I correct in thinking that um, Epidiolex is not like from cannabis, it's cultured? Is, it, is that correct? Like it's... Uh, I, my understanding, I might be wrong here, but my understanding is that it's a proprietary formulation and I believe the CBD is plant-derived and standardized. I, I, I could oh. be wrong about that. I'm willing to admit that I might be wrong. Um, I, I've actually been working with a company um, called Nalu Bio in, in California. They're a great company who are looking to make synthetic CBD, uh, have developed methods to make synthetic CBD that's um, cost comparable to naturally derived CBD precisely because the hemp derived CBD from China that's used in a lot of these products sold in the US um, is actually pretty unreliable as a, as a raw material. Um, my understanding is Epidiolex, so it's produced by GW Pharmaceuticals. They're actually um, growers in the UK originally was how that company started out. They've been looking at these some of these minor phytocannabinoids for years, THCV and other things. My understanding was Epidiolex uses um, plant-derived CBD, but in a, a highly standardized way in this proprietary formulation that's designed for human oral dosing. Um, and if I'm being honest, the, the reason for that is that bringing natural products to market as an approved drug via the FDA regulatory processes is extremely expensive. I don't think people are aware a lot of the time of how expensive that is. But for a drug company across all of their failed programs versus successful ones, the total costs are probably over a billion dollars US. And bringing a natural product where you can't get any exclusivity around the molecule itself um, to market with those costs means that you, you need to come up with clever ways to make it um, unique or superior to whatever natural products people can buy. And so with Epidiolex, 
that's that's the general case. They've tried to make this highly optimized, standardized formulation of CBD. It's FDA approved, which means the FDA considers it safe and reliable for use for, for medicine. Um, and as a result, you know, it's available through health insurers and from a pharmacy and it's kind of expensive and, and all of the usual things that you get with drugs. But my understanding it is it is plant-derived CBD and it's just highly, um, highly optimized and pr a proprietary formulation for whatever that's worth. Yeah. What do you think the future of medical cannabis looks like? I, I can't remember who I was talking to. The reason I asked you that question is because I think they said either that or maybe the future of cannabis will be kind of like lab cultured cannabinoids yeah. um, to make kind of something similar to drugs we see today. Like you mentioned acetaminophen earlier. Yeah, that, that's the, the idea of using synthetic biology. So I don't know how much your listeners know about that space. It's a super exciting space in biotech at the moment. Um, it's the idea that you can use um, various organisms, um, often bacteria or fungi that are, are genetically modified and given the right feedstocks in a sort of cultured system to produce the drugs that you want. And, and you know, you lyse the cells, you harvest off your drugs and you just purify them. And it's, it's a really cost effective way and scalable way to produce quite elaborate um, and, and otherwise hard to make natural products, cannabinoids or otherwise. So there's been a huge amount of development in this space. Um, one of the more interesting elements is that maybe you can take like a non-natural feedstock and make not THC, but a THC analog, you know, something like um, THCV, which is not produced abundantly by the plant. You could actually use a different starting material to produce that as the sole cannabinoid almost from, from one of these synthetic biology systems. So I think you will see a lot more of that going on. You're already seeing it. It's more relevant to um, cannabis than it is to psychedelics precisely because cannabinoids are um, more complex natural products than, than many existing psychedelics. And we don't have very good synthetic methods um, for producing a lot of them. So I think you probably will see some of that going on. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so is there any similarities between cannabis and psychedelics in the sense of uh, I mean, I know that's a pretty vague question because psychedelics, that's a huge umbrella. Uh, but I guess let's just, I always like to start with mushrooms. We always say organic, don't panic, right? Um, if it's, if there's like very little intervention involved, I feel like you should be pretty comfortable with it versus like, you know, what it takes to come up with cocaine, not saying that like, I'm sure, you know, experts that could make great cocaine, but not, you know, not, not everybody has access to the equipment and everything else. So it can get kind of scary when chemicals become involved. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there, are there similarities between like the composition, I guess, to, of, of psilocybin and mushrooms and um, I guess like, is there even a barometric like uh, like like we've come up with THC for an indicator of potency and we've even started to come up with thresholds in the states of like, oh, you can only have this many nanograms of THC in your blood. Is there any sort of like numbers or thresholds like that being discussed in psilocybin? I've just never heard of I, whenever somebody tells me to take mushrooms, they're like, oh, yeah, take an eighth. And it's like, but that's not a dose. <laughs> it's a weight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there are some there's some important differences. So that they're both psychoactive substances. They're both produced by natural organisms. There are some key similarities there. The the effects and even the sort of uses are quite different. Obviously, um, there are some parallels in terms of analytical things that you might want to measure components of these substances. So, in in psilocybin mushrooms, um, psilocybin cubensis, for example, psilocybin functions as the sort of uh, precursor to psilocin, 
So it's a, a secondary metabolite produced by the fungus. Again, like cannabis for reasons we don't understand, probably not for our, our use, but it produces this psilocybin that's broken down in the body to psilocin. Those compounds um, on a sort of molecular weight basis um, are essentially equivalent in potency. So the difference is, is just from the promoidy and psilocybin once that comes off, you know, those two substances are, are weight for weight equivalent in, in potency. Um, so this tells us that psilocin is the main psychoactive component in mushrooms and, and psilocybin sort of its key prodrug that's found naturally um, in greater abundance. Those two are probably the most relevant levels in mushroom testing, the most relevant compounds, sorry, in, in mushroom testing and the levels of those in the mushroom should correspond with a sort of types of experiences and effects that a, a user can expect based on a given dose. Um, but, you know, as, as you mentioned before, Cole, about uh, cannabis and representative testing and all of these things, analytical um, testing of representative samples, you're going to run into the same issues with, with mushrooms as well. They're, they're a fungus, you know, a fruiting body that's harvested and dried. It's going to depend on how you test them, how they're stored in between, what sort of testing methods you have. But yeah, in theory, it is possible to say that sort of psilocybin and psilocin are probably the two main alkaloids that people should be looking at in terms of understanding potency of mushrooms and regulating them along those lines. Yeah. And this is, this kind of is maybe a, a good segue into uh, the last half of our show and we can even bring up silo bio and stuff. Um, do you think the future of medical cannabis and medicinal, I don't even medicinal, it seems like people are talking about medicinal hallucinogens or medicinal psychedelics. Do you think there is a future for that? And not to, sorry to throw you a second question, but does it involve the plant? Like it seems to continue to involve, like it's kind of unique. I feel like about this space. Yeah. I think if, if there's, there's this sort of pervasive chemophobia in, in the world at the moment and people are scared of chemicals, right? They don't understand that. In fact, we're like, we're literally bathing chemicals all the time. You know, water is a chemical, everything is a chemical essentially consciousness is a drug that's what i've been saying lately like we are tripping yeah. right now you know yeah you know it's, i think everything we are literally surrounded by chemicals all the time chemicals are not bad necessarily some are very bad you know like ricin's pretty toxic for humans um arsenic's generally not very great at high levels some chemicals are very good you know we talked about penicillin earlier in the show so it's not it's not that something is a chemical itself it's not that something's synthetic it's really about its interaction with with humans with the environment the ways in which we use it, you know, and I've spoken to Hamilton Morris at length about this. He's got very strong opinions on this as well. Um, chemicals are not bad, you know, just like there are no good and bad drugs, just good and bad uses of drugs. There are no good and bad chemicals, just, just good and bad uses of chemicals. Um, there is a pervasive chemophobia. People are scared of synthetic chemicals. And that just comes from sort of understandably like lack of sort of uh, informed scientific knowledge on the topic and around these different chemical substances. For that reason, I think people feel somehow less threatened by by natural substances, compounds, especially compounds that are found in plants. And you hear this all the time in the cannabis space, you know, it's, it's just a plant, but you know, right. foxglove is also a plant that can kill you. You know, castor beans contain ricin and can kill you. There are plenty of plants out there that can kill you if you don't know what you're doing. We just, we don't eat those, you know, we don't use those. We, we avoid using them or in the case of foxglove, you know, we have turned it into um, other different, different drugs, digitoxins that are useful for, for various cardiac diseases. So it's really, it's, it's not just in whether something's synthetic or natural, it's in, you know, the form of those drugs and sort of the ways that we use them as well. Uh, but for whatever reason, people feel less threatened by a, a plant than by synthetic THC, and they feel less threatened by mushrooms than they do by synthetic psilocybin. For all the medical trials going on, the clinical trials with psilocybin, 
purely because of these issues we discussed, the difficulty of actually standardizing a dose and, and showing the, the purity and quality of that substance, people tend to use synthetic psilocybin. All of the, I, I know a bunch of people involved are, are running clinical trials in this space at the moment. They all use synthetic psilocybin that's manufactured um, to good manufacturing practice standards. They can show exactly how pure it is, how stable it is on the shelf, all of these things that you would do with any other drug. Um, in, as far as I know in those trials so far, the, the really rigorous clinical trials, participants are, are not concerned with whether the, the compound comes from a mushroom or is synthetic. But in other areas, um, obviously there are people who feel very strongly that uh, as with 5-MeO-DMT in the toads, there are people who feel very strongly that the mushrooms are somehow different than synthetic psilocybin. Uh, as, a, as a chemist who sort of studied these substances and understands the chemistry and the pharmacology, I, I don't think there would be a significant, you know, subjective perceptual difference between synthetic psilocybin and mushrooms if you blinded it properly, but there are other people who disagree. And are you saying Hamilton is one of them? Ham Hamilton sort of, Hamilton's a scientist, he's a chemist. He, he understands a lot of pharmacology. We, we had a discussion on his podcast the other day about this idea around 5-MeO-DMT. So he's also... You know, he's, he's um, a super intelligent guy who thinks a lot about his position on the planet and its impact. The idea that people are running around, even non-lethally, harvesting 5-MeO-DMT from toads, which is, a, you know, pretty, certainly a pretty invasive practice for the toad itself and for its ecosystem, when there is a synthetic route available that's, you know, makes the stuff extremely accessible and is far less harmful to the environment, you know, his position is that, you know, everyone who wants to use this substance should be using a synthetic form. And every time he, he brings this up at various psychedelic conferences, you'll see him get shouted down in the audience from people who are like, you know, it's missing the synthetic material. I've tried both. The synthetic material sort of missing something that that's it, it's the it's, it's the, the entourage the effect. <laughs> it is exactly the entourage effect. If you ask any of those people, oh, do, do you know which one was the toad material? They're like, oh yeah, of course, yeah, I harvested it myself. I'm like, well. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's modern animism is what it is. It's, yeah. It's, and you need that control is what you're trying to say. Yeah, because it's just I, like we pointed out with my edibles. If I go in saying, oh, I'm about to get fucked up, that plays into how I'm going to feel it. Placebo effect, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, the ex yeah. expectation effects. There's a super interesting study done very recently looking at psilocybin and LSD and their subjective effects in a blinded way. And it turns out participants on the nature of the subjective effects alone, apart from the duration of action, which is, is known and, and measurable and noticeable, people generally can't actually tell the difference between psilocybin and LSD. That blew me away. Like I was actually kind of shocked by that. I was like, surely these are two p different pure substances when administered without telling people which one's which. In this study, people can't actually tell which one's which. It's amazing. I'll, I'll send you the link to the study. I was impressed by that. The only way they can tell the difference is because they know they have different durations of action and they can tell that one lasts longer than the other. <laughs> Right. So that the LSD is probably like 12 hours and the mushrooms are like eight or something. Yeah. Yeah. Six to eight and sort of ten, six to eight for mushrooms and 10 to 12 LSD. And apart That's from hilarious. that difference, people can't really tell the difference at various doses. I wouldn't Very have guessed it stuff. either. I wouldn't have guessed it at all. It surprised me. Yeah. Especially from my experiences. Like, yeah, I was exactly. Like, but my experience played into it. It's important to realize <laughs> that, right? Exactly. Like people forget I, that. And they, of course. Yeah. You know, you're talking about drinking a beer on an empty stomach versus after a good meal, you know, by yourself at home after a long week versus out with friends. What everyone's very happy to dismiss with all these drugs is the role of the person taking the drug and their their state, which is hugely important, you know. In, in, yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> You go to a birthday party right after going to a funeral, you're probably going to have a very different time than going to that same birthday party after, you know, coming from a football game or something. You know, that 
the sort of mental state of the person taking these drugs is so crucial that their context is so crucial to the experience they have. And everyone's yeah. just very happy to dismiss it and attribute it to the drug, which I think is, is not quite correct. And that is one thing that I think people in, in this space, if you will, throw around that it does have, uh, I mean, I feel like you just described it. They, they throw these two terms around set and setting your mindset yeah. and your setting. And so, like you say, if you just left a funeral and you're super down and then you take yeah. a bunch of mushrooms, yeah, you might have a bad trip. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. I mean, Timothy Leary is sort of largely credited, whether he's responsible or not, he's credited with sort of formulating the framework and, and even those terms, you know, like dose set and setting that comes from Leary working with these substances, Leary and others, but he gets the credit for it. Um, working with these substances when psychedelics were still quite new. People didn't know how to use them. People didn't know how they worked or, or how to really interact with these substances. And pretty early on, people figured out that, you know, dose has a huge effect and both set and setting, you know, your mindset and, and the setting in which you take them have a huge effect on the experience. But I'd argue the same is probably true for cannabis in, in a lot of the cases as well. It's not just the dose, uh, you know, and it's not even just the, the cultivar of cannabis. It's like, how are you feeling when you use that drug? Where are you using that drug? Who are you with? You know, all these, all these factors definitely play a role in our experiences with any of these psychoactive substances. Um, so yeah, so we just talked about, uh, why I think that was a really good in-depth conversation about why people tend to feel more com or more comfortable with the plant-based, um, alternatives versus like, you know, what might be synthesized, even though in double blind studies, we've found, uh, in some contexts that they can't tell the difference. Um, so I thought that's interesting. I want to go back to the, I accidentally threw two questions at you and you did a really good job of answering the, the plant question. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the future of medicine involving all these substances. And I know that's a big question, but can you, yeah. can, since you've got this company and presumably are looking into all these things, can you, can you machine gun through me some of the most exciting yeah. developments and uh, all this? Yeah, of course. Um, so, so I think you're, you're exactly right. I think th as there will always be a market for plant-based cannabis products and, and, you know, consumers will tell you that and the market has already sort of shown that people want those products and they will presumably continue to exist unless, you know, they're prohibited again in a dramatic way. For some people, they're happy with synthetic products. You know, there are plenty of people who have taken synthetic THC for various medical ailments as prescribed and are happy with that material as well. And the same goes for CBD. I think you'll see the same thing with psychedelics in Canada already. You have labs who are now doing testing around mushrooms that are grown for clinical use. I think there will probably still be a market for those. It's pretty cheap to grow a mushroom. You know, it, it can be done pretty easily in most parts of the world. So I think there will absolutely be a market for those. If, if we move beyond medicalization of psychedelics into sort of a more recreational type model, of course, there'll be a market for those products. I think there'll also be a market for synthetic psilocybin and, and other psychedelics. There already is. There are people manufacturing these on the multi-kilogram scale to support clinical trials, which is would be harder to do if you're using mushrooms only. And then what Silobio is doing, and, and we're one of several companies in this space, but we're actually looking at what's called new chemical entities. So the pharmaceutical term is NCEs. So these are compounds that are essentially, you sometimes referred to as next generation psychedelics. So one simple example is um, you know, one, one of the reasons psilocybin is used, remembering what we just said about the subjective similarities for some people in blinded studies of psilocybin and LSD, one of the reasons mushrooms or psilocybin get used more in a lot of the studies than LSD at the moment is because of the shorter duration of action. If, if these are administered clinically, you know, you often have two therapists sitting there guiding the session for someone who's um, being treated for usually a depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder. 
that's that's a lot of time. If you need two therapists for 12 hours for a session, you know, what if what if the person's not having a great time, decides they don't actually really like LSD and it's a really challenging session for them, they're committed to that for 12 hours. Psilocybin's a bit better, you get down to eight hours, but quite a few people, including Silo, are interested in this idea that maybe maybe you want a shorter duration psychedelic, something that can be taken orally, you know, so people don't have to vaporize or inject anything or other mm-hmm. modes of administration that are concerning to some people, something they can eat, a tablet in some form that produces, you know, a psilocybin-like effect that's maybe two hours long or three hours long. That would presumably find broader appeal as long as it's it's a useful substance that people want to use clinically. That would probably have broader applicability than even psilocybin itself. So there are a couple, couple of companies looking at these sort of shorter-acting psychedelic-like substances. Um, there are also people who are looking at this idea that some of the effects of psilocybin on depression um, correlate with sort of changes, actual structural changes to the brain and to the neurons in the brain. Not everyone wants to hallucinate. There are some people for whom psychedelics will be contraindicated, people with certain um, certain other conditions, you know, schizophrenia or psychosis, for example, those people will be medically contraindicated from taking psychedelics. But what if we can harness some of the antidepressant properties of these psychedelics without the hallucinations? So this is another key area of research at the moment. It's it, it's not really it's not proper to call them psychedelic drugs necessarily. Some people call them non-hallucinogenic psychedelics, or the other term you'll hear is psychoplastogen. So this idea that maybe compounds that are not they, they might be a little bit psychedelic or sort of non-hallucinogenic entirely, but still have some of these rapid and sustained antidepressant effects. That's that represents an enormous benefit to people who who have these sort of untreatable or very very hard to treat depressive disorders but don't want to take mushrooms for any reason or can't take mushrooms for any reason. So these are sort of two broad categories of drugs that, that Silo is working on developing. And, and we're not saying, you know, that these will displace mushrooms and we're not trying to pattern these molecules so that, you know, no one has access to these substances. Actually quite the opposite. We want to develop better versions of these drugs that are applicable for more people who can't use the naturally occurring psilocybin found in mushrooms. You're not trying to start a shroom war. No, definitely not. I think, you know, I, I spoke to Hamilton about this on his, um, on his podcast. And there's a lot of misunderstanding here. Um, it, it, like I said before, it costs a lot of money to bring drugs to market. Compass is trying to do this right now with, with psilocybin and, and I commend their efforts unless someone beats them to it and can do it entirely grassroots, um, you know, without spending a bit of money uh, around some sort of proprietary formulation to get the drugs to market. Once that happens, there's an exclusivity period. So yes, Compass might have you know, proprietary rights to a certain form of therapy with their psilocybin-based product for a number of years, and they might profit a little bit from that. And that's the general model for pharmaceutical development. But what people forget is that after that period of exclusivity, they have taken on the enormous cost of bringing a drug that a lot of people want access to legally to a legal market. Once the FDA says psilocybin is, is a legal medicine, it no longer fits the Controlled Substances Act Schedule 1 definition. The DA is obligated to reschedule that into a medicine. So there are these sort of longer term, if you can think a little bit further ahead, there are sort of serious benefits to a number of the companies, both you know, non-profit and for-profit in this space, even doing this really heavy lifting around um, bringing all of these interesting substances to market in a way that costs a lot of money, but without, you know, without some sort of reimbursement, there's no incentive to do that work really. It's very hard. Um, there are exceptions. Obviously MAPS, you know, Rick Doblin and, and the MAPS team have done a phenomenal effort with MDMA for PTSD. It's, it's also taken them 40 years and it's been all grassroots funding and if people had thrown, you know, a little bit more money at that earlier in various forms, that, that might have been a drug that was available to people with PTSD a lot sooner. So there is some benefit to sort of for-profit drug development. 
there's some benefit to nonprofit drug development. I'm not, there's, there's no one solution here that's going to be perfect for everyone. I just argue that, you know, it's, it's super exciting to have so many people so interested in developing treatments for depression and for these other really, really hard to treat mental illnesses. Yeah. You know, it's funny, uh, not to get into, to this subject cause it's, you're, you're going to know it's a landmine that I'm bringing up. So let's not step on it. But when Donald Trump, oh gosh, there's a landmine. Uh, <laughs> when Donald Trump, uh, brought up, um, the right to try during the heat of COVID, I was like, where does that end? Can I like, uh, you know, I want to try mushrooms to see to see how they how they oh, well, affect COVID. Once again, it's the right to try some drugs for some people. It seems like um, I, I had yeah. a, I have a, I think I can't remember if I tweeted it out, but I saw, I did see something funny the other day about uh, fungus was recently found. A paper from 2020. Um, I think I first saw it via Nick Jacobus in his pod, podcast, which is great if, if you listen to that one. Um, he'd retweeted this this article about a fungus that produces ketamine. So they think that ketamine doesn't look to me like a natural product. It definitely was designed synthetically originally, but someone thinks they found this. This is the one, yeah. It's super interesting. So someone thinks they found ketamine in this fungus. They propose that it has this sort of like deworming effect. And, and all I could think of was exactly what you just said with all of these people wanting the right to try ivermectin to treat COVID, which there's no evidence at all. But, you know, as long as it doesn't place additional burden on the health system and, you know, hopefully doesn't hurt them, which of course it has, that's the problem. Um, you know, sure, people should be right to should be free to try whatever whatever they want. But I and that's that. that's our stance. If I might speak for both of us, <laughs> for all drugs, right? If it, as long exactly. as it doesn't put a significant burden on the healthcare yeah. industry, the right know. to try all drugs for all people if it doesn't harm others. That's that's what it should be. Not the right to try some drugs for some people. You know, yeah. so it's a funny position. This is a super interesting article, anyway, for the people who are interested in the science. I I would love to see this work replicated. I'm not sure I entirely believe it. If if true, it's like super interesting because. It's the first case of a ketamine-like molecule being produced by by nature, which is pretty interesting. It also suggests there'll be a lot of other ketamine-like molecules out there if we go looking. Yeah. Well, Sam, I want to I wanna be mindful of your time. I want to be able to give you some time before your next meeting to go, you know, if, take care of yourself or whatever. Um, I wanted to thank you so much for sitting down with me today um, on the show. It's really an honor and a privilege. Like, I didn't expect to hear back from you, to be completely honest. <laughs> It's, so. it's been super fun, Cole. So thanks for having me on. I, I almost didn't get back to you and um, only because you seemed, I, I had a quick look at the podcast. You seem like a super great guy. It seems like you're, you're getting some good information out there. And I've been to Chicago a few times and I was living in the US, loved it, like had a blast. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for, for having me on. It's a great way to start the day. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that it, it was a good start to your day. I'll, I'll be in touch uh, like I'll, I'll stay in touch rather. I'd, I'd love to have you back on in the future if there's any new developments. And I'm sure, you know, as this uh, all continues to evolve, there's going to be more subjects to discuss. Hopefully yeah. we can get over some of the subjects though, that we discussed today, <laughs> yeah. like the entourage effect. With I, I'm, sure, I'm sure I just made, you know, another half a billion enemies online. Um, oh yeah, people hate me so. now. People hate me now because of you. Thanks, yeah, Sam. Don't, don't shoot Cole. He's, he's just the messenger for my, you know, undesirable message. But yeah, to, to those yeah. people, I would say, like currently, people are looking. People will keep looking. There isn't much evidence for the entourage effect in the way that it's currently marketed. That's not stopping scientists from looking. You know, I would say, don't hate me personally just because I found no real evidence. You would love to prove them right, wouldn't you? You don't want to prove would, people wrong. Soon, <laughs> no. If, if someone shows me evidence for the entourage effect, I will complete. I will do a complete one eighty on every 
public opinion I've ever had on the topic. And I would, you know, I actually love to be proved wrong. Like, I just want to see the evidence because then we can agree on what it is and stop wasting a lot of time arguing about it online, which would be great. Yeah. All right. Well, Chillinois, you just heard it. That's a challenge from Sam B. Uh, show him, uh, show Sam uh, some convincing evidence of the entourage effect and he will publicly um, retract <laughs> his statements uh, that he's made in the past about it. So I'm just trying to be funny. Um, again, folks, I hope you found value in this. Uh, we'll have links uh, to connect or follow uh, Sam on social media and uh, to check out his website in the podcast description. Um, Sam, once again, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah, great speaking with you, Cole. Thanks so much for having me on. Yep. All right, Chillinois. Well, we hope you found value in this episode. We'll have Sam back on sometime in the future. And uh, maybe if one of you have uh, presented him with uh, you know, that unquestionable evidence, we can discuss that then. Uh, so thanks, Chillinois. And uh, we hope you had a happy 420, even though you're probably not listening to this on 420. We hope you're doing well and, and enjoyed the holiday. So happy 420, everyone. <laughs> See you, Chillinois.